Open your Bibles up to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. If you have one of our black Bibles, it's on page 472. We're going to pause our series through the Gospel of John. If you've been with us, we've, we've been going through the Gospel of John. And we're in this Advent season now. We're going to do a series that I want to call uh, Signs of the Coming King. Okay, Signs of the Coming King. John's Gospel, if, if you've been tracking with us, is organized around seven signs. Seven signs that... Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. Now, John makes it clear, we've seen this already, that, that, um, that Jesus performed way more signs than seven of them. And so many, actually, at the end of, of John's gospel, it says that if they were all written down, not even all of the books in all of the world would be able to contain them. So why does John limit it to seven, right? Um, John limits it to, to seven, and he tells us the reason in chapter 20 of John. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I, I love, I heard uh, recently someone say, uh, talking about the, 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 the beauty and the reality that we have God's word preserved for us. And he said, you know why God preserved his word? So he can preserve his people through it. And I love that. I love that John has written the gospel and it's been preserved for us so that we can believe and by believing have life in Christ and all that he is. We just finished up John chapter 5 last week where Jesus told the Jewish leaders that all of their scriptures, our Old Testament was their Bible, all of the, the scriptures testified about Jesus. And since the, the, the theme of Advent it is centered around this anticipation of the, the Messiah's arrival. And since John's gospel is structured around these signs that point to Jesus' identity as the Messiah, I thought it would be fitting for us to look at some Old Testament passages over the next few weeks in which God uses signs to assure his people of his promise to send the Messiah King that they've been waiting for. So we're going to start this morning by looking at Psalm 2. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just give a disclosure ahead of time. There, there's no signs in this one. I know that kind of immediately defeats the purpose of the, of the uh, title of the series, right? Signs of the Coming King. But here's why I want to start with Psalm 2. Because it so clearly establishes the surety of God's kingship and offers hope not just to the people of Israel who sang it originally, but now to everyone in the world who looks to Jesus as king. So I want to I read the psalm in its entirety. It's a shorter passage this week, so we're able to do this at, on the front end. I want to read it, and let's just, let's just take it in for a minute. And then I want to pray and ask the Spirit's guidance to give us the wisdom that we need to understand this and, and see Jesus here. So here's Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. 
Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word from Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament to New, and how it serves as a complete testimony to Jesus Christ as King. We pray this morning that through Psalm 2, your spirit would lift our eyes to the one enthroned on heaven and who's coming back to make his kingdom known fully here on earth. Would you give us a longing for his return and a contentment while we wait? because Christ is king. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You ever play the game King of the Hill when you were younger? Or maybe when you're older? Anybody still play it? I think Randy, probably, we could, after church, we could all try to take you down. Um, I was never good at it, pretty weak. Uh, but if you're not familiar with the game, it's it's somebody goes up to an elevated position, typically a hill, you know, you like kids roll down the hill and then everybody comes and runs up the top of the hill. And then it's just a giant wrestling match, right, to see who can be the last one standing at the top of the hill. You get to throw people off of the hill and let them roll down. I think parents love this game with their kids, right? Um, eventually, though, eventually, even though, like, there was always one kid that was, like, super strong and would, would be up there the longest, but eventually even that kid would tire out, right? And, like, six or seven other kids would finally come and take him and toss him, and then, and then they would fight to see who could be up on the hill. Eventually that king of the hill was, was dethroned, if you will, right? Here's what we're going to see this morning. A, a king of the hill match between Christ and every other king. And here's what we're going to find out. The kingship of Christ is guaranteed. So all who take refuge in him have reason to rejoice. We don't have to be king of the hill. I don't want to be king of the hill. The kingship of Christ is guaranteed. So all who take refuge in him have reason to rejoice. Here's how we're going to break this down. Okay, We're going to look at the nation's rage and God's response, that'll be the first half of the psalm. And then we'll look at God's reign and the nation's response, that'll be the second half of the psalm. The, the nation's rage, God's response, God's reign, and the nation's response. So the nations are angry. Let's read Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The psalmist opens this psalm with a rhetorical question in order to point out the futility of the rebellious actions of these earthly kings. It's pointless what they're doing, essentially, is, is, his, is his thought, is his point. The nations are angry. The world is angry. 
And it's been that way ever since the rebellion in the Garden of Eden. We know this story as we, we went through the book of Genesis together. After Satan came in the form of a serpent and deceived Eve, and she, she and Adam ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit that, that God had forbidden them to eat. God came and he cursed the serpent and he promised to put hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And one of the woman's offspring would come and crush the serpent's head while the serpent crushed his heel. As we made our way through the book of Genesis, we saw over and over again the hostility that, that formed between these two genealogies, if you will, spiritual genealogies, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, how the seed of the serpent raged against the seed of the woman. Think of Cain and Abel. Cain murderously, rageously. I've started a thing now where I'm just making up a word each week. I don't know if you've caught on to that. Rageously, okay? Write these down. We'll get a glossary later. He raged, killed his brother. And, and from then on, the nations raged as they grew at, to one point where God said, the whole earth is full of evil, right? Here in verse one, the psalmist says that the people's plot in vain. That word plot in the Hebrew can also mean meditate. We read Psalm one for our prayer time this morning. Psalm one uh, talks about the righteous person who's meditating on the instruction of the Lord seems like as these two psalms go together that the, the, the psalmist here is, is contrasting, using some wordplay here, contrasting the righteous person in Psalm 1 with the raging nations here in Psalm 2. The righteous person delights in the Lord and in his instruction. It says he, he meditates on it day and night while the raging nations rebel against the Lord's instruction and plot against him. Same word. Look at the language here, though, in these verses that we just read. The nations rage. They plot, they take their stand, they conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. There's no, no submission whatsoever to God here, none. It's only opposition, only opposition. They do not delight in the Lord's instruction. Instead, they see God as the oppressor who binds them and chains and, and yokes them together with ropes. They don't want to be ruled. They want to rule. You ever felt that way? We don't want to be ruled. We want to rule. That's how we all were before God graciously ruled over our hearts. Remember, this is a royal psalm. This is one of ten psalms in, in Scripture, or in the, in the, 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 the psalms, uh, that's labeled as a royal psalm that, that gives us a portrait of the Messiah, the coming King. Anointed one here refers to a king appointed by God to rule over his people. The Hebrew term for it is, is where we get the word Messiah. The Hebrew word is Mashiach. Okay? So we get translated English Messiah. The Greek word for it is Christos. We get the English word Christ. Messiah, Christ, king. That's what it means. Israel's first two anointed kings were Saul and then David and every king appointed to the throne after them was anointed with oil like they were. They were the anointed one. They were the Messiah. Little m. Little c in Greek, if you call them Christ. The picture that the psalmist gives here is one of the 
kings of the world rebelling against God by raging against the king of his people. They're rebelling against the God of the world by raging against God's king. It's a cosmic game of king of the hill. Now, we could ask the same question that the psalmist raises here in verse 1, right? The, The world continues to rage. I don't know if you read any news. You're probably better off not at this point. At least not as much as you stick your nose in your Bible. How about that? Nations are at war with each other. Worlds are, world leaders are flexing their nuclear muscles. Cyber attacks are, are, are running rampant by the minute. Between nations, among nations. The rage isn't just between nations, though. It's also within them. Civil unrest, protests, political division, and cultural polarization. I just described our own country. And yet we're seeing that in, in more and more countries across the world. The nations are raging. They're raging. People are angry. And as Christians in America, we're facing increased opposition by a culture that sees us as the oppressors, binding and chaining people who want to be free. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. We should expect that. We don't need to be alarmed. We shouldn't be alarmed when an unbelieving world behaves like an unbelieving world. I heard a pastor recently say, the world will world. The world is going to world, right? We need to remember that. We can't expect unbelievers to, be, to behave but like believers until they believe. We get to John 15, we'll hear Jesus, the ultimate anointed one, the capital M Messiah, the capital C Christ, tell his disciples, if the world hates you, understand this, that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. If the world hates you as a follower of Christ, Jesus says that's a good thing. It's counterproductive to our own hearts and our own tendency to want to be liked, right? Or to be safe. Acts 14 During Paul's first missionary journey, he and Barnabas preached the gospel and a great number of people were turning to the Lord as a result. And then at one point, the Jews from the area came and they stoned Paul, threw rocks at him, dragged him out of town and left him for dead. You know what happened? He got up. He got up and the next day, he and Barnabas went back into town and they preached the gospel some more. And then they went to some other towns where these Jews who had stoned him came from and they preached the gospel there. And they strengthened the disciples there by encouraging them to continue in the faith, by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, listen, did you catch that? They strengthened, it says, the disciples, the new disciples, these brand new believers by saying, you need to expect to suffer for Christ. Expect that suffering will come. In Acts chapter 4, when the early church was facing heavy persecution from a raging world. They looked here to Psalm 2 for comfort. Listen to what it says in Acts 4, 23 through 31. And Peter and John were released. They went to their own people and they reported everything the chief priests and the elders of the Jews had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and they said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven 
the earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot futile things. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah, against his anointed one. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, the anointed one, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders. There's your signs today. When you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. They got what they asked for. What didn't they ask for? Take us out of this situation. No, no, no. Give us boldness to preach your word in the midst of it. The apostles and disciples of the early church understood that Psalm 2 was ultimately pointing to Jesus as the Lord's anointed one, as the Messiah. They were not shocked by the raging and the plotting and the assembling of the world against them because they understood that the world raged and plotted and assembled against Christ. If the world rages against Christ, then it will also rage against his people who are united to him by faith in him. That's going to happen. We should learn to expect it. The early church understood this, and they didn't panic. They didn't cower in fear. Instead, they trusted in the God who sovereignly orchestrates his plan of redemption and asked him for the boldness they needed to continue proclaiming the gospel to a raging world. This should be our posture as well. We we don't know how how much we're going to be persecuted or, or raged against, but we should expect Paul says, through many hardships, we'll enter the kingdom of God. We should expect hardships. As Christ's people, as his church, we should not rage against a raging world. So if you're reading the headlines, and you're getting angry, and you're firing back, that is not the posture that Christ has called us to. We expect it, but we don't retaliate against it. Nor should we panic or cower in fear when our religious liberties are threatened. Instead, we should look to God's word. Nosedive into it. Look to God's word to prepare us for persecution and to comfort us when it comes. Do you notice that, all those disciples? When they felt that immediately, what did they do? They went to Psalm 2. They ran to the word of God and then they prayed to the God of the word to strengthen them. We don't need to fear the rage of the nations when we see God's response to it. So let's read it. Verses four through six. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. And then he speaks to them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king On Zion, my holy mountain. These verses use 
vivid imagery to contrast the kings of the earth with the one enthroned in heaven. Remember, palms are, uh, palms, psalms are poetry. They're, they're songs, right? They use imagery. They use uh, th- this, this beautiful language not just to communicate the truth. Any, the, all of Scripture communicates truth to us, right? But the psalms in particular use this kind of language not to just tell us the truth, but to impress it on our hearts, to drive it deep in our minds and our hearts. The psalmist could have simply said, the nations are strong, but God is stronger. That's true, right? It's no less true than what he said. But here's what he says. The nations rage, and God laughs. The nations rage, and God laughs. They plot, and they take their stand, and they conspire against the Lord and his anointed one, and the Lord ridicules them. Psalmist doesn't just want us to know that God is the sovereign ruler over the entire world. He wants that reality to drive deep into our hearts, to impact us the way we live, so that we trust in and rest in the God who cannot and will not be intimidated by even the most fearsome rulers on the earth. Anybody scare you right now when you think about world leaders or anyone else in your life? God laughs. He ridicules. He's not scared. Listen. The rage of man does not put fear in the heart of God. And we should all say amen to that. He will not be intimidated. He will not be moved. Plot and plan, though they may, it will fail in the end. But look at the contrast. The anger and wrath of God puts fear in the heart of man. Rage of man does not put fear in the heart of God, but the anger and the wrath of God, the holy anger, puts fear in the heart of man. Why? Because God has installed his king on his holy mountain and no one can dethrone him. He's the king of the hill, right? Psalm 46.6 says, Nations rage, kingdoms topple, the earth melts when he lifts his voice. There's some powerful imagery for you. Isaiah 40, 23 says, He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. More imagery that's incredible. We could just say God's strong, but this gives us a picture of how strong he is. God does not just laugh and ridicule. He also gets righteously angry and he reduces earthly kings and kingdoms to nothing. They will not go on forever. Yeah, they might overtake us, but they won't overtake him. God doesn't plot and conspire. He speaks and he does. He declares and he does. The one enthroned in heaven has established a throne on earth. He's installed as king as his representative on Zion, his holy mountain. Mount Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And more specifically, it's the name of the hill where the temple is located. It was not only the place where God's king dwelt, but it was also the place where God himself dwelt. There's a relationship there between God and his king. And it was the earthly capital through which God would make his heavenly kingdom known to the world. So we've seen the nation's rage. We've seen God's response. Now let's look at God's reign and the nation's response. Look at verse 7 through 9. 
This is the king talking now. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I, I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter and you will shatter them like pottery. These verses recount the coronation of one of God's earthly kings and they tie it back to the covenant that he made with King David. Started with, with Solomon and in every king's coronation afterward, they, they would sing these words. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, God told David, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you a descendant who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. I will install my king. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. David, your line will be different. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. This covenant was fulfilled initially through David's uh, son Solomon. And then it continued down through David's family line. Every descendant of David that was installed as king over God's people would also be called God's son because that man was God's chosen representative to, to the people of Israel and to the nations, or was supposed to be. We look at the history of the kings of Israel, and we know that the kingdom split after Solomon into two kingdoms. And then the northern kingdom of Israel had terrible kings, and the southern kingdom of Judah had bad kings and good kings and in the middle kings. Nobody fulfilled this perfectly. They all were, uh, did wrong and needed to be disciplined. You remember God's covenant with Abraham back in the book of Genesis? God promised to make Abraham the father of many nations and then to what? Bless the nations through him, right? And his descendants. And then in Genesis 49, we saw Abraham's grandson, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. He spoke blessings over the, his, his 12 sons that, that we become the tribes of Israel. And he established Judah's family as a royal family line. The scepter will not depart from Judah. And everyone who reigned from Judah's family line would do so in anticipation of the one to whom the throne and the obedience of the nations truly belongs. We read about that. That was, that was what Judah, or, uh, Jacob said to Judah. David and his descendants are the royal line that came from that family, from Judah's line. And they would reign as mediators of God's blessing to God's people, but also to the nations in anticipation of this coming king who is the rightful and final heir to the throne. David and his descendants did wrong, right? And God disciplined them. But this king, the one who would come, he does no wrong. He doesn't need to be disciplined. And this king will rule over more than just Israel. He'll rule over the whole earth. The psalmist right here says, the nations will be his inheritance and the ends of the earth his possession. Total reign. Who is this king to whom belongs this global reign? It's Jesus Christ. He is the true son of God. That's why John calls him that. 
John wrote his gospel so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, and what? The Son of God. The Son of God. That by believing this, we would have life in his name. Last week I mentioned that Acts chapter 13 is an excellent example of what it looks like to proclaim Christ from the Old Testament. In Acts 13.33, Paul quotes Psalm 2.7 right here to show that Jesus' coronation as the forever king took place at his resurrection from the grave. Psalm 2.7, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. It's true that, that people called Jesus a king when he was born. We just sang uh, words like that in the, in the Christmas song we just sang. A lot of Christmas songs, that's the theme. Christ the baby, the king, Right? It's true that Jesus, when he began his, his adult earthly ministry, he began preaching the good news of the kingdom. It's true that he was called the king of the Jews during his crucifixion and that the gospel writers portray that Passion Week and, and Christ on the cross as his coronation, as, his, as his, the cross as his throne. Sign above his head read king of the Jews. He wore a crown of thorns. He was crucified between two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. This is all kingly language, except for the crucifixion part. But the thing that sets Jesus apart from all of the other kings that came before him is his resurrection. It's his resurrection. You see, King David and every descendant after him died, and they gave up the throne to the next generation but Jesus died and then he rose from the dead and he's not giving up the throne ever. It's his. Paul opens his letter to the Romans by declaring that God had promised the gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures and that the gospel was about his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed anointed to be the powerful son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Paul goes on to say that through Jesus, he had received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among all the Gentiles, including the Romans to whom he was writing. The obedience of the nations belongs to Jesus. Why? Because the throne belongs to Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the unique Son of God. No other like him. His kingdom is the kingdom to end all kingdoms. He will break them with an iron scepter and shatter them like pottery. Verse 9 here. It's quoted three times in the book of Revelation, twice to speak about Christ's final victory over all of his enemies who rage against him, and once to speak about the believer's victory in Christ. Let's not miss that. Our victory is in him. Why? Because he's going to do all the breaking. He's going to do all the ruling. We'll get to reign with him. Scripture tells us that, but Jesus is king forever. The author of Hebrews quotes verse 7 two different times. Once to show Jesus' superiority to the angels, and once to show that God has appointed him as a priestly king, the order of Melchizedek, to, to intercede for his people. Ephesians 1, 
when we went back through the book of, of Ephesians, Paul, we, we saw this. Paul prays that Ephesian believers would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward all who believe. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. Paul says, God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. That's a throne. Far above every ruler and authority, every power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything, everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Do you know that right now, Christ is actively ruling over everything and everyone, over the entire universe, from him and through him and to him are all things. By him all things hold together, Paul says. Christ is currently and actively ruling over the entire universe, over the spiritual realm and the earthly realm. Why? For the good of his church. We're victorious in the king. He rules on our behalf. Think about that for a minute. What does that mean for us? It means that everything that you have no power over, he has all power over. It means that everything and everyone that exerts authority over you will never be able to exert authority over Christ. This is good news, is it not? His rule is totally expansive. There is no place and no person that does not come under the kingship of Christ or will not come under the kingship of Christ. That means that there will never be a situation that you're in in which Jesus will say, sorry, I can't help you. That's out of my jurisdiction. Aren't you glad? It's quite the contrary. It means that Christ is doing something about the things that you think he is not doing anything about. It means that he's doing something about the things that you think he can't do anything about. It means that even the very hardest things in your life that are beyond your control are being governed carefully and perfectly and completely, totally by our priest king who is eternally enthroned in heaven and on earth and is always always, always interceding on our behalf. That is why we sing the songs that we sing. We didn't sing it this morning, but that's why we can confidently sing song lyrics like these. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Church, these are our songs. We sing these not just in wishful thinking, but in glorious hope, hope that's guaranteed. This total reign of God's king ought to make those who rage against him think twice about what they're doing. And that brings us to these final three verses in Psalm 2. Look at verse 10 through 12. So now, kings, 
be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Depart from me. Nope. Skip the page. Don't leave yet. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice in trembling. Pay homage to the Son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. There will be a day where Jesus says, depart from me. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. Listen, judges will be judged. Kings will be dethroned. Rulers will be ruled. Jesus rules over everything and everyone already. That's a reality. But his rule has not yet been fully realized by everything and everyone. There is a not yet to his rule. The last verses of this psalm are both a serious warning and a gracious invitation to all the people who continue to rage against the king of heaven and earth. The right response to Christ's kingship is not rage. The psalmist tells us it's rejoicing. The right response is not plotting and conspiring against him. It's receiving his instruction. It's not tearing off chains and ropes. It's serving the Lord with reverential awe. It's not taking your stand in rebellion. It's falling to your knees and paying homage to the Son. In the Hebrew, verse 12, pay homage. literally says, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Here to kiss the Son means to submit to Him, to give Him your affection, your loyalty, your worship, to esteem Him, to honor Him as the King that He is. But the Gospel writers speak of another time when the Son was kissed. You know what I'm talking about? It was a kiss of betrayal. By Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples who pretended to pay homage to the king, but who actually conspired together with the raging rulers who plotted to kill Jesus. And at first, it seemed like their plan succeeded. Jesus was arrested, he was tried, he was condemned to death, he was crucified. But then what, what the leaders who raged against Christ didn't realize was that their wicked plan was under the rulership of God's redemptive plan, of God and his redemptive plan. Remember the prayer of the early church in Acts 4? You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, everybody, everybody, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, here it is, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. You know what God's will is and was? That his one and only son would leave his heavenly throne to come and live as a human being on earth that he ruled over. But the king didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for, for people who wanted to rule themselves and raged against God's authority. 
people who stood against him as his enemies, people who deserved his wrath because of their sinful rebellion against him. But the king that God installed on his holy mountain took that wrath upon himself when he climbed up another hill, a hill called Golgotha, where he would wear a crown of thorns, where he would be mocked by onlookers as he hung on the cross, and Jesus willingly did this. The king came to serve. He did this so that anyone who believes in him would not perish in their rebellion at the, at the hand of Almighty God, but instead they'd be graciously welcomed into his forgiving arms. This is the beauty of the gospel. The king who could crush us, who could shatter us, who has total authority over us, has granted us mercy and grace. And we do not deserve. So will you kiss the son in honor? Or will you kiss him in betrayal? Will you submit to him or will you rebel against him? Remember Jesus' words last week in John 5, 22 and 23. The father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son so that all people may honor the Son. Pay homage. Kiss the Son. Just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You see, the King of kings and the Lord of lords humbled himself and gave his life to turn raging rulers of their own kingdoms into rejoicing subjects of his. That's what we were raging rulers of our own kingdoms, and Christ, by his grace and mercy, has turned us into rejoicing subjects of his. Christ him humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross, Paul tells us in Philippians 2. And because of that, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is King to the glory of God the Father. So why not humble yourself now and willingly bow to the King and confess his kingship? You'll do it someday. Why not do it now? Be wise. Listen to the psalmist's instructions. Be wise. Receive instruction. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to the King. Confess your sin and your need for his forgiveness. And here's the guarantee. The King will grant you mercy. You will not perish. You will be forgiven you will have everlasting life. See, life and death hinges on how you respond to the eternal son who is eternally king. John 3.36 says, the one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Rebellion leads to ruin. That's what the psalmist tells us in Psalm 1 and here in Psalm 2. Rebellion is the way of the wicked who rage against the Lord and his anointed one. Those who rage against the king will perish under the full force of the king's righteous anger. But all who take refuge in him are happy. They're happy. Same word here at the end of Psalm 2 is used at the beginning of Psalm 1. I don't know if you caught that when we were 
reading that for our prayer time. Psalm 1, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. Be wise, kings. Or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. Receive instruction. And he meditates on it day and night. In both cases, the word for happy can also be translated as blessed. Blessed. You see, Christ is the serpent crusher. He is the long-awaited descendant of Abraham who comes from the royal line of David and brings blessing to the nations by ruling over them as king forever. As we celebrate Advent, we don't have to wonder who the coming king is, who he will be, and when he will come. Instead, we get to worship the king who is who already has made himself known. Yeah, we can wonder when he's going to return. Yeah, we can pray that he would come. We ought to. Scripture guides us that way. This psalm has taught us that the rage of the nations is laughable, but the righteous anger of God is laudable. He's worthy of our worship because he's a righteous judge and he's the king forever. God has installed his king on his holy mountain. Jesus is king of the hill and he will not give up his throne. And he'll never tire from defending it. The kingship of Christ is guaranteed so all who take refuge in him have reason to rejoice. So let's serve our king with reverential awe and pay homage to the king who was and is and is to come. The one who has come and who will come again. And as we anticipate his turn, let's not rage against the ones that are raging against us. Instead, let's invite the raging world around us to be wise, to receive instruction, and to take refuge in our King forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have installed your King and that his reign is secure and that we are secure in him. Lord, help us to rejoice in that more and more with each passing day for your glory, for our joy and our good. In Jesus' name, the name of our King forever. Amen.